0: i have your attention please good evening
1: you're listening to straight talk with dean and mark we thank you for tuning in and hope you enjoy another exciting episode of our show
2: All right, folks, we're over here in tune with the uh, Straight Talk with Dean and Mark, and uh, we're hoping to have a number of guests that will be joining us in the uh, very near future to have the show on and to keep things rolling. So definitely looking forward to having a uh, great conversation here on um, Straight Talk with Dean and Mark. I'm expecting uh, Dean to join me at any moment. and. Uh, have a conversation about what's going on around the world. We do know that we had a earthquake here not that uh, long ago. It was a couple of days ago that we had a uh, minor earthquake that uh, shook the ground. So it actually, wasn't that minor? It was 5.1. So we cannot call that minor. In the least bit That is definitely right. not a uh, minor earthquake They've actually said that was one of the heaviest ones In over a hundred years And then of course there are still protests going on I understand there were some arrests that were made Over there around Asheville Revolving around uh, Black Lives Matter And uh, protests against the police And things of that nature So there's definitely a number of things That are going on in the community And that continue to go on In the community So we are definitely keeping our eyes on that I have not seen yet whether uh Mr Biden has picked his candidate or not, but uh we're gonna not find yet. that out as well. So I found out from Dean that we do not have the candidate picked or anything of those nature so Dean I guess I had to take over the lead but I was just going well, to the you, know you were going back and forth so uh, <laughs> and, I just took over the lead and, uh, but ain't, you ain't are always that. the master from North Carolina to New Jersey we just going to go from North Carolina to New Jersey instead of New Jersey to North Carolina exactly. but uh, you always exactly. do a great job and uh, you know I try to step in when I can and I saw that there was a little bit of a glitch and I had a little bit of a glitch on my stream yard and streaming podcast as well so so that's just the nature of technology. Sometimes there can be glitches. So we still had a great conversation on that show. I had Janine Dolly, who's actually out of New York, and she's a, uh, what do you call them? like a HR executive and somebody that's involved with diversity and that kind of training. So we had a really deep conversation. You'll be glad to know your buddy Pierce was on the show as well. So oh, yeah? the second of my two streaming shows Pierce was in there, right. definitely gave the conversation, talked about black liberation, gave shout-outs to people like Josh Gunn, and he did let folks know that, no, he is not going anywhere. He is planning to continue to run, and will, you All know right. he might not have won state senate. he might not have won uh, city council, but he was letting folks know that he is not going anywhere. He's in it for the long haul, he's in it for the uh, battles to be, so I had him on, and then on the uh, first streaming show, I had Mitchell um, Silver, who is the Parks uh, Commissioner in New York City, so had a nice conversation with him about that, and a young lady named Eloise McKinnon, who is a Christian romance author. So, like I said, you know, on that show, just like on here, and of course, this will all be Aaron on our uh, network, the next level network, because i send you the audio and you'll put it up on our scenes. But I think folks are in for some delightful conversations and things of that nature. And it looks like we've got oh, yeah. our guests already online. And I think one of them might be one of your people. And one of them may actually be Ronnie. So we're going to see who the, the 919 number is first. But as we're getting to them, would you tell the folks while I'm talking to this person and everything, are we bringing them on what is happening in uh, your neck of the woods. You're in New Jersey, and you usually ask me, so I get to flip the switch <laughs> and flip the script and ask you. So, I know it's hot here. It's still hot here. It's been hot yeah. here for a while, but how are things going where you are?
0: You figure it's 91 degrees up here. Was well, 86, but it feels like 91. And you know, the heat right now is kind of, damn it, it's good for my solar panels, but ready for the weather to kind of drift off let's fall into that autumn weather not too hot not too cold and get there because the summer with the pandemic is not the move man it's just like i mean i get to sit in the air condition when i'm not at work but at the same time it's not too much that we can do you know can't go to the movies can't really congregate like that um I'm not sitting outside and eating. I have a big thing with flies and food. They don't get along. So, you know, right now we're just waiting. Hopefully, I know they said that the pandemic is supposed to be another wave of it. Hopefully it's not. But we'll see what, you know, what happens as the weeks go by. I mean, we are already into the eighth month of this year. And it's like, wow, where did it go? You know, 2020 flew by kind of quick. Hopefully it'll take the pandemic with it so we can uh, get to some type of normalcy because after a while, people are going to start to go crazy just sitting in the house, man.
2: Yeah, and I think people might already be doing that to some degree, and I agree with you. I know so I've talked to some friends of mine on various phone conversations, and we've all come to the agreement that we just want to trade 2020 in. So, like I said, 2020, you know, maybe we can just find a way to trade it in for a better year or something like that, because everybody has been complaining about the nature of this year, and some people have had it worse than others, but definitely the pandemic hasn't helped. Then, of course, we've had um, protests and unrest, uh, but as uh, some people have told me, these are things that have been Uh, festering for a while and that they should have known that they were going to boil over at some point or another, but, you know, we've got all kinds of things that are going on and then, of course, with the pandemic, everybody's trying to figure out their finances. I know the uh, president tried to put in an executive order, which I understand he doesn't have the legal power to do, but, you know, he's trying to pay me instead of the uh, 600 that I was getting, like down to 400, and some other things that he was trying to do. I could definitely use whatever money the government wants to send me, I could definitely use with it. But, you know, they're playing uh, games with people's lives and things of that nature. So I'm not expecting it this week. Um, if I get it, I will be pleasantly surprised. But if I don't get it till like the end of the month or even not till September, that's not going to surprise me either because I know how politicians play in some of the games they play sometimes. Right. not saying all of them because we're going to have a couple of them on the show and everything so I'm not saying all the time but definitely uh, we do know that they get involved sometimes in certain kinds of ways and I don't know about you, you got that steady going to the uh, job in correction, so a couple of my jobs have been in various forms of layoffs so I could definitely use that check and we'll see what happens whether it comes or doesn't come but you know at the same time a lot of the bill collectors have been put on hold as well so Um, at least I have that little bit of a reprieve so I have to you know do some budgeting and some other stuff because I don't want the the bill collectors to have a big stack so that when they come after me when they're able to come after me they're like going hey Mark you know you don't just owe it 600 you know it's 6,000 so I'm not trying to have that happen so I'm trying to you know pay what I can when I can and try to pay it off when I can so that we don't have them coming at you talking about some Crazy figure, and I'll be going like, well, uh, let me see what I can sell in the house or what I can get rid of in the house in order right. to pay y'all off because that ain't what I got at the moment. So, like I said, that's the way things are going in this neck of the woods. So, we got somebody on the line from 919-587-6090. So, um, who is calling me from that number? And then we'll jump into the conversation. But, uh, who's calling from 919-587-6090? From Durham. Hey, Ronnie, this is the gentleman. Hey, Dean, you'll be glad to know we finally got Ronnie on the line, and we're going to get another politician as well, one of your politicians. But Ronnie has been – we've been having all kinds of issues. First, I had schedule issues. He had schedule issues. We all had schedule issues. But the first question I've got to ask you, Ronnie, is I've told a number of friends of mine that you are uh, running for state treasurer, so I want people to know exactly what does the state treasurer do And the other thing that I've talked to them about is the fact that you are an Indian American running for this office. I'm not sure, because I've known you through some of the political circles, whether you're first generation, second generation, or what generation you are in that um, nationality. So if you could share with us a little bit about, one, what a state treasurer does, and a little bit about the nationality question. Because I've had a couple of friends of mine, including an Indian American that does a – streaming show out of New York, and he was asking me, is he first or second? I'm like, I don't know. I'll ask Ronnie what
3: I talk to him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Well, Dean and Mark, it's awesome to be here. Thank you so much. And yes, I say that state treasurer is like the most important job that no one ever heard of. It's one of those under-the-radar ones. And when I talk to people, I say, look, if I ever show up in the front page of the paper, you know I've done something really wrong. It's the kind of job that you've got to do right, and if you do it right, it'll be behind the scenes. You do three major things in North Carolina. One is you manage the $100 billion, with a B, pension fund for all of our state employees. My folks were state employees where I grew up, and so this is the way that they save money for retirement. The state puts the money in, the employees put the money in, and we manage it. And so you're investing that money across stocks and bonds and real estate and venture capital. And it's up to the state treasurer as the elected person in North Carolina to make sure that money gets invested right. In most states, you have a board that does that. In North Carolina, there is only one, and so I ran as the nerd we need to be that one to be the sole trustee uh, in North Carolina, and uh, we won the primary on March third with uh, with that. The second thing you do is you manage the state health plan. So, you know, my folks, when they would go to the doctor, the health plan governed by the state would pay for that. And so you end up being the largest reimburser of health care in the entire state of North Carolina. So it's like running a big insurance plan. And so when you run the state health plan, you're responsible for 720,000 of our state employees. You're spending $3.3 billion a year. And you have to figure out how to, how to make that dollar that we spend on health care stretch further and also get better healthcare outcomes and so that's the second big responsibility of the state treasurer and the third is all of our state and local bonds in North Carolina are approved and issued by the state treasurer so we're trying to build broadband infrastructure to help the kids and other folks who need to access broadband internet for their lessons or for telehealth you got to build new schools and uh, have kids more spread out that's going to go through bonds water and sewer infrastructure all that stuff goes to the state treasurer. So I like to say it's kind of like the chief financial officer of North Carolina all rolled into one job.
2: Wow, that's a big responsibility (laughs) that you're trying to get going
3: and everything. And um,
2: who is your opponent that you're running against? And then if you would talk a little bit about your own –
3: Personal background. Oh, I yeah, mention the background. Oh, yeah. Is- my background. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Republican incumbent has been there for one term. You know, we haven't had a Republican treasurer for all, almost 100 years. So this is really rare um, occurrence. And so I'm running against the first term incumbent, and things are looking good. We're we're uh, we're battling out there. Things are looking good in the polls, and I think we got a great chance to win in November. If we win, I would be the first person of any kind of Asian origin to ever be elected statewide in North Carolina history. So it is crazy to think that we could be making history in November. We were the first person who's Asian American ever to be nominated by the Democrats statewide in North Carolina history. So we're trying to do a lot of things that haven't been done. But, you know, I mean, just listen to the vibe and the people that you have on your show. You have a lot of creative people who are making impacts and making history. And so I'm trying to do the same thing. Following their example, my parents immigrated here from India in the 1960s. And I was born and raised here in the United States of America, uh, came to North Carolina for work later in life. And so I am what they call a second generation Indian American, except for those who call me a first generation because sometimes they think about the first generation born in America. But um, my parents were immigrants. I learned a lot from their experience and uh, try to pass on some of that to my kids. But I got to say, my kids feel 200% American given that their folks uh, are both born and raised in the United States. Wow. And um, you talked about that uh, background
2: and everything. What are some of the things in terms of a platform that you've been running? Because I know every candidate has a platform. So what are some of the things that you've been trying to raise in terms of the issues that you are
3: passionate about that you want folks to know is the reason that they should vote for Ronnie? Sure. I mean, you know, I'm a college professor by background. I teach at a a private university in Durham that, uh, you know, we're not going to talk about it now because of basketball seasons and stuff like that. But I've learned a lot teaching there. And my tendency is to kind of want to explain to people all the different things I could do as treasurer and how excited I am about it. But you know what? People just really want to know that you're fighting for them no matter what position you're in. So we've been talking about the really basic issues of we need to expand Medicaid in North Carolina. That is an economic and a moral imperative that will be good for North Carolina. We also need to find a way to help more North Carolinians save for retirement. I want a program in this state called Auto IRA. You know, there's probably 50% of North Carolinians who don't have anything saved for retirement. I'd like to see individual retirement accounts for everyone in this state to help people save. Save and build wealth. So those two things, Medicaid expansion and the auto IRA, are the things we talk about most. We also just need to make the pension fund and the health plan work better and stretch those dollars further for North Carolinians. And that tends to be what we talk about, because most people don't have a you know a lot of knowledge about the treasurer. They end up asking a lot of questions, and that ends up being kind of the most fun part of the job.
2: Yeah, and you can imagine that more and more people are going to be asking you exactly um, the nature, like you just explained, of the job and how the job is done and things along those lines. When did you first get involved in politics, and were you always like the one that was going to be the person in your college or in your high school that was doing (laughs) treasurer work or doing accounting work, or were you like the typical uh, person that was very good at math growing up, or was this something that came to your in, as an interest later in life. So, how did you get I, into I love this it. field? I love
3: oh. Yeah, yeah, I love it, Mark. So, I it's funny. You know, when you first said that, I was thinking I wasn't really the guy doing that stuff, but. I remember I was actually the treasurer of my student government in high school. And I really didn't remember that during this race, but yes, that is true. I was the treasurer, and I was thinking I had all sorts of dumb slogans on my signs back then. You actually had campaign signs you put up in the hallway. Things like, vote for Ronnie for treasurer. It makes sense. You know, stuff like that that I would never, ever use on Twitter right now, right? we much more sophisticated. But um, I was treasurer of my student government, so maybe that's how I got my start. But, you know, really what inspired me to do this was in 2008, I worked for a senator named Barack Obama who was running for president. And when he said that a skinny kid with a funny name could do anything in this country, I thought he was talking about me, and I I got involved in his campaign, and it changed the way I viewed myself. It changed the way I viewed my country, and it changed the way that I thought I could make an impact. And so when he went up and was elected president, he hired me to be his economic advisor in 2010 and 11. I came back to North Carolina from D.C. determined to do more in public service and put what I know to work for the state. And so I continued at Duke uh, during that time, continued to do research, got tenure and all those kinds of things. But from then on, I really knew that I wanted to get involved in state and local politics. And uh, being an economist by background and having that training, that really made Treasurer the place where I thought I could have a unique impact. because. I think for any theory of change, you have to think about not just what you want to do, but where you will be best, most useful in terms of making impact. And for me, that's much more like a treasurer than some of the other positions out there. So that's really how it all came together. Wow. And um,
2: I had um, on one of my streaming shows, because I told you before that I have the streaming shows as well as this more traditional kind of podcast, Pearson. We were talking about just politics in general. So what has been your take Of Durham politics and things of that nature, because you've been involved now for a number of years, and of course here in Durham we've got the PACs, whether that's the um, People's Mm -hmm. Alliance, whether that's the um, different other the Durham Affairs and different other kinds of folks. But Mm -hmm. what is your take of the political landscape of Durham, and how have you tried to navigate that political landscape?
3: That's a great question. I have lived in Durham for about 15 years now, and so you know, I was lucky enough to get endorsed both by the People's Alliance and the Committee on the Affairs of Black People in Durham. And so I've had a really great experience reaching out to groups in Durham and really had strong support from Durham in my primary election, and I hope to represent Durham on the Council of State. I don't know when the last time is that we had someone from Durham in a statewide position like that so I felt really good about it people have welcomed me with open arms I think you know the one thing I've learned mark more than anything is when I started running for office a lot of people told me that they thought they they'd have me giving speeches all the time but you know you spend a lot of your time listening the campaign is a two-way street. And so as much time as you spend talking, you also spend listening. And I've tried to listen to folks who know a lot more than I do about the history of Durham, the key issues facing the city, the county, and what I can do as a leader to make things better. And I'm not going to be able to do it all on my own. My gosh, I'm going to have to work together with our city officials, our county officials, and all the people who are not necessarily elected to things, but are community leaders in our faith community, for example, and our business community in particular, and of course, the nonprofit sector. So I think I've learned a I got a lot more to learn. The good thing is I'm building that network of people to give me advice, and um, I hope I'll continue to build it going forward. But my experience has been really positive, and I think Durham's in an exciting place right now, and there's lots of different perspectives on where it needs to go. And that's what makes leadership challenging but also makes it, like, really interesting, right, because there isn't just one right answer because people view this all differently. So that's been my take so far, and I've just been happy to be part of the process. There's nothing more important than getting involved in our democratic process, I'd say, right now, especially with 2020.
2: No, I would definitely agree with you on that. this is a very important time and a very important election to have and uh, I know a lot of times folks are always looking at the national scene and they don't oftentimes pay enough attention to the state and the local level, but those are the ones that are actually just as important and in some cases even more important. like you said, a lot of people don't know what a treasurer does or even what a state treasurer does. What have been some of the things that have surprised you that people have asked you about or things that they want you to do that you weren't expecting them to want you to do when you came into the office and as you are going on the campaign trail? So just share with us some of the uh, sure? stories of things that people might have found unusual that they think you should be doing or that <laughs> maybe they think you should be doing that you can't do. But just along those lines, it. what are some of the it. folks that the folks so- have ask you to do and whether you can actually do them or not.
3: So we have this joke in our campaign ad. You can check it out on our website on RonnieChatterjee.com. My friend Brett um, was in the ad, and it basically says, what does the treasurer do? And we we have the man on the street, in this case is Brett, and he says – does he guard the treasurer? And it's a joke because Brett knows what the treasurer does, but um, at the end of the day, people really like that. You know, The treasurer doesn't guard the treasure. You can't uh, cut taxes. You can't um, pass legislation. So a lot of the questions people ask me are things the treasurer cannot do, you know, but the treasurer can do a lot of things that people don't even know about. One is you know, as a, the discussion of this country, and we could have 10 podcasts on this about diversity, inclusion, and racial equity. Well, the treasurer can play a huge role on economic justice you think about who manages our money in North Carolina, that $100 billion isn't just invested directly by the treasurer. We allocate it to lots of fund managers. And thinking about those managers and the diversity on their teams and how they then in turn invest that money in companies and what the diversity of those companies look like. Well, you know what? We can have a say on those things. When you have $100 billion in investment, that's like having 100 billion votes on the future of how the economy operates and who it works for. And so I think a lot of people have been surprised how much I talk about diversity and inclusion, how much we can do in the treasurer's office with the power of our money and our investments, and how we can make the case that those things actually relate to the bottom line. And when you have a company that doesn't have a diverse viewpoint, they might miss really important opportunities in the market because they don't have good representation in their senior management. Those are the kinds of things as a treasurer you spend a lot of time thinking about because that's my parents' and other people's parents' money invested in those companies. The second thing is climate change. Most people don't expect me to talk much about the environment. The treasurer seems like a really buttoned-up position that has to do with dollars and cents and not an environmental position man, other than the governor, I think you can have more impact on climate change than anyone in this state because, again, the biggest emitters of carbon – are companies, and we invest in companies, and we can work with them to think about their climate adaptil- adaptability plans or sustainability strategies. So I spent a lot of time working on those issues. I authored a book in, called Can Business Save the Earth? About this stuff. So I would say climate change, the ability for the treasurer to make a difference, that's the thing that surprises people most when I bring that up, especially for younger voters. Their eyes light up, and they're a lot more interested in this position than they were before.
2: Wow, definitely sounds like a job that a lot of folks need to be paying more attention to and things of that nature. And by the way, Ronnie, I'm not sure where exactly did you grow up because you did grow up here in North Carolina. So
3: you're a transplant to the area. So where was home in terms of where you grew up? Yeah, I grew up in upstate New York. I was born and raised in a small town outside of Binghamton, New York. My dad uh, still is a professor over at the university there and moved to North Carolina in 2006 to take a job at Duke. Um, My wife graduated from Duke, so we both have these kind of ties going way back here. Um, And it's home for us. I mean, it's been a fantastic place to raise our kids. My folks are still up in upstate New York, and so um, that's where I grew up. Wow. And you're talking about people having that kind of uh, ties to uh, the um –
2: executive office within the state office, and you're right, there have not been that many minorities that have tried to do that or anything. Actually, I want to say Elaine Marshall is still the Secretary of State, and if I'm correct about that, um, her first run for Secretary of State, she was actually going against my mother because my mom ran for Secretary of State uh, back when she was working at, I believe that was in her uh, years at Z. Smith Reynolds. So it was either Z. Smith Reynolds or her time at Golden Leaf, but she had that state experience. So I've actually seen what a state run can be like, and I know that it is not an easy task just based on <laughs> that time uh, many years ago that my mom had that run. And like I said, she uh, lost in a runoff. To um, Elaine Marshall, oh. and I know that Elaine has had that job for a number of years because if mom had run, then she would have been the one that ran against Richard <laughs> Petty, but she did force <laughs> Elaine into a runoff, and Elaine still acknowledges my mom because when she's come to events at HI or other things, I've reminded her that I am the son of Valeria Lee, and she'll be like, yes, I definitely know who you are and things of that nature, so uh, they don't have any oh. hard uh feelings about that race but definitely uh they both are aware of each other so i do know how difficult a state run can be just based on my mom's one time at doing it because like i said she only ran that one time for that state office but she has definitely had some other appointments including like the board of trustees for the uh, center for public television at unc which she was appointed to back in 1980 and a couple of other kind of like types of uh jobs that would be within the government uh, realm. So I definitely know about that. And of course, as you know, I'm friends with many folks here in this area, whether that's our current mayor or our um, many members of our current city council. So I'm definitely friends with them. So I have seen a lot of the uh, political landscape here and things of that nature. As one that came in here from New York, what was your take of the political landscape (laughs) when you first came in here? And what did you think about it?
3: Oh, great question, Mark. And I will say, your mom is a pioneer because, you know, we've only elected, and this is going to be crazy, but this is true, we've only elected one person of color to our Council of State, which is our statewide offices in North Carolina history. And it was Ralph Campbell, our state auditor. Right. And I believe it was in the yep. 1990s, right around that time. Think about that, given how diverse this state is, given how diverse Durham is, and given how many people, talented people we have how crazy that is and what i think is interesting is this year you have a chance to elect i think by my count at least 3 persons of color to council state positions. And so that's really, really interesting and a tremendous opportunity for North Carolina. And thinking if there's just been one, it, we're all building on the shoulders of folks like your mom who went for these races. And it is not easy. And a lot of people with diverse backgrounds are just discouraged from doing this kind of thing. And I think that more of us need to do it and more of us need to support each other. When I came here, the political landscape, I found it really exciting because honestly, when you move from a place like New York, where The elections don't have very much drama. You know, you kind of know which party is going to be in control. North Carolina feels very much to me like a microcosm of the United States of America. And I think when you look at politics in North Carolina, when you think about the messages that resonate with voters, it's very likely that this is the kind of stuff that is going to resonate in all the close elections in places like Pennsylvania and Wisconsin and Arizona. We live in the swingiest of swing states. And what happens in North Carolina will have a huge impact on who owns the White House uh, in terms of which political party and which party controls the Senate and the House of Representatives. And so I feel that living here helps us get a, a finger on the pulse of the country in a way that when you live in a state that's you know, more red or more blue, you don't necessarily see. So that's what I found to be really interesting living in such a crucial battleground state.
2: Yeah, it's definitely a battleground state, and I definitely want to continue this conversation. But I want to bring in uh, two more guests uh, for the show, and uh, one of them is involved in the business world and is up there in around the um, northeastern area, if I remember correctly. But I want to bring in Leah, and then I want to bring in a candidate that's running in for um, an office in Florida. But I want to start off with Leah. Leah, are you there, and can you tell us about LSX and that lovely platform that you've got that I am now just Booking guests left and right, including you, because you're the first guest that I've booked using y'all's lovely platform. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Mike.
1: How are you? Um, sorry, I'm doing good. How are you? I'm doing good. <laughs> yeah, well, so, thank we you for having, having me. a conversation yeah, with oh.
2: Ronnie, but I just wanted to bring you into the conversation as well, and then I want to bring Kyle in as well. But if you would tell us a little bit about what X is about and about the platform and about the business that y'all created and also where you were calling from. Cause I didn't quite say exactly where you're calling from. So you let folks know that are listening where you're calling from and just tell a little bit about your trajectory. Cause, uh, as uh, Ronnie was saying, he actually started up there in upstate New York as a, um, His parents had moved from India, and then he was born here in this area in upstate New York, and now he's living down here, having moved down to North Carolina, and he's running for state treasurer. So I want to hear a little bit about your story and your business story, and I'm going to bring Cal in as well. But we want to start with you first.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Mark. Happy to uh, talk about it. So we're based in Boston, Massachusetts, so still in the northeast area. Uh, and I'm the co-founder of LSX, which is the first B2B multi-sided platform that matches startups with media and event organizers that are interested in their stories. And this way, um, we are helping startups that have traditionally been an underserved uh, part of the market when it comes to visibility, simply because the traditional options of whether that's getting on a show, having an article written about you, or speaking at an event have not really served them well. When you look at uh, what the landscape looks like and what the options that existed prior to us were Um, You had number one, the option of hiring a publicist, which is very expensive. It costs an average of $5,000 a month. And as an early stage company, you simply cannot afford that. It's not a good use of your money, and the only alternative to that would be to go ahead and pitch people on your own. And that can be extremely time-consuming and result in a lot of frustration Um, and distraction from building the business. I know a couple of founders that went that route. They spent more than 100 hours pitching, and in the end they had very limited results to show for it and thought that the time that they had spent did not justify the uh, results that they've gotten. So that's how my co-founder and I came up with the concept of LSX. And what we do is... um, we help startups, especially in the early stages of their journeys, pre-seed to series A stages mostly, um, tell their stories so that they can get in front of more customers, connect with potential investors, um partners, and uh in the future when they have the need to hire, uh, get in front of more uh potential employees.
2: That makes a lot of sense and that sounds like a great program and they definitely, like I said, as a media um, person, I've definitely used your uh, platform, and we've had a number of your uh, clients on already, and are hoping to have some more. But definitely one thing I've noticed is that a lot of the startups have been minority startups. Even when I went on the Explore on LSX, I noticed that there were a number of them that were of um the, the startup owners were of either African-American descent or Indian descent or other kind of minority descent. So are we seeing more of the startup community coming from that era now or coming from, like, the minority community? Because it does seem like we're seeing, I guess because of the pandemic and more people are trying to find creative ways to have businesses in their, like, create their own businesses, that we are seeing more of this in the minority community. I was just wondering if that is just a uh, – misconception based on your platform, or are you seeing that as a trend?
1: So I think that diversity is really important, especially when it comes to entrepreneurship, because people from different backgrounds would typically be drawn to solving different problems, and they would have um, a very specific way of approaching them based on the, uh, where they grew up, how they grew up, um, what their community was like and uh, for us uh, i don't think it's necessarily related to the pandemic uh, because we've been uh, very fortunate to kind of naturally get a very diverse uh, set of um, startups um, on the platform but we are definitely seeing a trend where um, underrepresented founders account for more and more of entrepreneurs however the misconception uh, is more that um, that is uh, that is the case now as if uh, then, like, it's always been the case. Um, traditionally, founders that are white and male have gotten the majority of the attention, whether that's from media or um, any other kind of visibility. And uh, underrepresented founders have not gotten the same amount of uh, attention, and that's something that we're... Um, working to change. Luckily, uh, we are at a moment in history when um, everybody is waking up to the fact that uh, diversity matters and that people who look different uh, than the traditional image of success uh, can also represent um, having great ideas and building something meaningful. So um, to summarize, I think that the trend is, Less recent than uh, we would um, all want, uh, we would all like uh, think. It's just a matter of the attention that these startups have gotten.
2: And one of the questions I was going to ask you is, I know that right now you're concentrating on startups, and you're concentrating on um, definitely those kind of businesses and things of that nature. Have you ever thought about using the platform to let political candidates know how to reach the media as well? Because we've got Ronnie that's running for state treasurer, and I've just brought in Cal who's running for governor in uh, the area of Florida. So has that been something that y'all have explored? Are y'all just going to strictly stick with startups, or would you be open to the possibility of exploring other avenues of people that may need media help? Because I know that oftentimes uh, the whether you're running for a state office like Ronnie, is, or actually a state office in Florida, which is what Cal is running for, you oftentimes need to get that media access. So I'm just wondering, is that something that y'all have explored as well?
1: That's a great question, Uh, and it's funny you ask that, because we've definitely gotten a lot of interest from a lot of different verticals, Um, and that includes anything from a law firm in Massachusetts to an independent movie studio in the United Kingdom. Uh, So there is definitely a lot of opportunity to open up the platform uh, to people that are beyond the startup community. However, to begin with, we're just focused on this one vertical because we want to get it right. We want to serve one type of customer really well before expanding into additional verticals so that um, we can help people one at a time. Like Eventually, there is unlimited opportunity uh, in terms of how we expand and um, how we help people connect with one another. Our mission is to uh, foster relationships that empower innovators to succeed. And an innovator can be anyone. It doesn't have to be a startup founder. If you are uh, somebody who's running for office that has a very innovative vision, um, you still fall within that category. Um, and it remains to be seen exactly what the uh, potential of our platform would be and what kind of people we will help uh, in the future
2: that sounds really good. So it sounds like Ronnie and Cal may have the opportunity to do it. It sounds like maybe not this year, which is when Ronnie will be running. But Cal's campaign doesn't come up till 2022, so maybe it's a possibility for his campaign as opposed to Ronnie's. Uh, Leah, I was asked Ronnie earlier about his background and whether he was like always the treasurer. Were you always the one that was doing the networking and the connecting when you were in high school or college, or is this a interest that came to you later in life? So what brought you to this? passion of yours for connecting people and to make, making the connection between startups and media? Is this something that was always a passion of yours in terms of connecting people, or is it something that you developed later in life?
1: That's a really good question. So for me, I would actually say that I did not really understand the concept of networking and connecting with people until I was in college. I grew up in Bulgaria, which is a post-communist country, and there, you had this notion that if you were networking to get a job or do something, get something done, uh, it meant that you were less talented, and you just had to rely on who you know to accomplish things, as opposed to uh, what you know and um, your own skill set. Uh, so then, I moved to the United States when I was 19 to go to college, and. Um, I spent a couple of summers unsuccessfully looking for um, internships in the startup space. I sent out um, about 200 resumes, got um, maybe five interviews and zero offers. um, Because I had no concept of networking. I thought that networking was um, when you would go to a career fair in college and you would line up in front of the employer table with your resume and have, like, 30 seconds to impress them. So I thought that I was really bad at it. Um, and then uh, I was the uh, summer after my junior year of college. I attended um, a networking event that was very casual. It was very much a startup environment, um, I was wearing sneakers and, like, uh, talking to people over beers. And um, it was there that I met somebody who then introduced me to the CEO of a startup that, which eventually led to my first internship in the startup space. Um, and I think that was a very important lesson for me to learn, that opportunities come from people and that knowing the right person or uh, connecting with the right person can open a lot of doors. Um, and after graduation, I definitely knocked on a lot of doors so that I could get through, and um, I developed a passion of helping people connect with one another and um, accomplish more together, simply because I had had um, this experience of having countless doors shut, shut in my face because I did not know the right, uh, the right person. So um, it was then and there. Um, I was very young when I learned this lesson, but I decided that whatever I could do in my power to help people connect with one another and succeed together, I would do. And uh, that eventually gave rise to LSX because I do think that uh, the way people connect should be more targeted, should be symbiotic. And um, right now, we don't really have great ways of connecting with one another besides um, email or like mutual friends, but that always limits the amount of people that you could meet.
2: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, Ronnie and Cal, I want to bring both of y'all into the conversation as well. Um, and this is a question about networking. Leah was talking about networking. How important has networking been to both of your political campaigns? Ronnie, you're running for state treasurer, and Cal, you're running for governor down there in uh, Florida. So I'd like to know what, how important you think that is to you and everything. And I'd also like to hear both of you speak as to the importance of startups, because I know that definitely here in North Carolina, there is a very rich startup community here in North Carolina, and uh, I believe there's one also in Florida. So I'd love to hear from both of you, um, your takes on the importance of networking and the importance of startups in your respective communities. So I'll start off with you, Kyle, if you could talk about that, and then I'll bring Ronnie back into the conversation as well to follow up with whatever your answer is. But definitely if you can talk about the- the importance of networking and the importance of startups there in Florida.
4: Networking is a, first of all, I want to thank you for the opportunity of being on the show uh, and finally getting everything together even though you gave me the wrong number. We'll talk about that
2: later, bro. Can you hear me? Yes, I hear you. Can you hear me? Okay. I hear you. You need to speak up, though. We're hearing you just slightly, so I need to just uh, speak up on the microphone and everything, because we do hear you, but it's only—it's um, a little bit low. So, if you turn the mic up, is that better? That is better.
4: Okay. I was using the microphone here, and now I'll take that off. Um, first of all, um, networking is incredibly important in politics because that's the only way you get a chance to know people. Um, generally, in partisan politics. You're dealing with um, people within the Democratic Party or people within the uh, Republican Party. But now um, the nature of politics has changed so much that I think people in both parties are not happy with either one of the um, people in the party. So you have to be able to reach across party lines, and it's about day-by-day day meeting people, um, shaking hands, getting people to know people in different um, you know, categories, different fields, different faces of business. Um, Here in Florida is such a diverse place. You have a large agriculture community, so you have to be very diverse in that agriculture community. You have several ethnic groups, so you really have to be able to maneuver and have those. And it's about, I hate to say this, but it's a personality-based thing with politics. If a person doesn't know you and the only thing they have to go on is your political affiliation, typically people are going to vote right down the D or right down the R line. But if you have the opportunity to speak to a person at a social, you know, Rotary's Club meeting, um, whatever the um, organization may be, and a person has that opportunity to see you, that four or five minutes that you have to say hello, that standing in the grocery line and you happen to have a campaign shirt on and you have a card, and that two or three minutes that you have a chance to talk to that teacher or that mother, or that agriculture worker. That networking works because that one person has the ability to talk to 15 to even more people, and first impressions are great. If a person liked you, um, then they're going to tell everybody, hey, this guy was real great, I liked him. If they don't like you, then they're going to say some terrible things about you, and it's going to go there. So it's just like with social media. Um, You have to be able to get around, and in campaigning, it's nothing new, It's been that way since the first campaign um, was ever held. It's about networking, shaking hands, and getting people to um, convincing a person why they should vote for you over someone else.
2: And in terms of the startups, how important has the startup community been to uh, Florida? And then uh, I'll toss that question to Ronnie as well. But Kyle, how important has the startup community been there in Florida in terms of uh, people creating these various kinds of startup business, whether that's um, businesses in uh, the computer field or whether that's businesses in other kinds of startup realms. So how important has that been in what you're learning about Florida and its uh, business uh, environment?
4: It's been very good. One is the weather. The weather is a very attractive feature for business uh, people to come to Florida. So if you live in Vermont, if you live in um, Idaho, Idaho, you live in one of the northern states and which your average Christmas is maybe 15 degrees or below, and you happen to come down here for Christmas, and it's 85 degrees and we're going scuba diving. Uh, that right there is a motivational way of having someone to say, I should reconsider having my business here. This Florida is a very business-friendly state where um, to start up with a corporation, you don't have the excess fees that you have in some of the states. And so it's very business-friendly. Of course, it's very competitive because of the number of people that are here. But, you know, businesses, wherever you are, whether you're in a small rural community or whether you're in a metropolitan area like Fort Lauderdale or Miami, um, it's a matter of how you network with that business. It's a matter of how you get forth and present your business to someone else and what can you offer someone else that may already be there. And the average person is looking for a friendly face and looking for quality service, and they're looking for you to be dependable if they have a problem with whatever they have. And if you can offer those basic things, Florida is a wonderful place for individuals to come and opportunity business. So, startup businesses from Florida have, um, over the last, like I think, five to six years, you know, you've had a substantial number of businesses from home-based businesses or small mom and pop shops to, you know, other corporations that are coming here. And the two, the two things that are very good here is um, no sales tax, uh, no, I mean, no um, state sales tax, state income tax, rather, and the weather. Um Florida has sixty seven counties, and about fifty of those counties are in weather that 's inducive where your average winters you know if you get into the thirties or forties you know uh that 's a freezing day, but it 's only for a few days um below orlando um you can basically almost wear shorts almost year round except for the occasional um cold weather spill we 'll have here
2: that may last about four or five days here in South Florida, well. Wow. Uh, Ronnie, could you think of the importance about networking in terms of your campaign? Like you said, you're running a campaign here in North Carolina, which means that you have to go all to all kinds of areas because we know North Carolina has a very diverse population. Yes, there is definitely the – what I would call the liberal core, which Durham is definitely part of, and I would argue definitely Chapel Hill. But, you know, Raleigh definitely has a conservative streak. Some people would argue Charlotte has a conservative streak, and there are definitely some conservative streaks once you go down, like around the mountains and things of that nature. So I definitely think of this as being a very diverse, even in terms of the viewpoints of the state. Kind of place. So I'm thinking that when you're talking to these folks, you have to find ways to address their concerns, even if they're not necessarily Democrats. Because I know that you're running on the uh, Democratic ticket. Cal is actually running as an independent. But I know that you probably have to reach out to folks across the aisle and uh, in different other kinds of ways. So could you talk about the importance of networking in that realm? And also, I'd like to hear your comments on startups here in Durham, because I do know that, uh, or even North Carolina in general, because I do know that sometimes. People are taken back by some of the tax things that have happened in our area. Like I know we had a very vibrant at one point film community, but unfortunately they don't get the kind of breaks that they used to get in terms of incentives. So I don't know if that would be something that your office would be dealing with or not if we were to bring those incentives back, because I do know that that's why some filmmakers have left this area having friends in that business. So I just wondered if you could speak on a little bit of that that I just brought up
3: that 's awesome and mark i 'm just sitting here it 's an interesting conversation on the deep topics i I do have to jet after this, so i 'm going to give you my answer and then i 'll have to drop off but um it is it's very interesting, so I mean one on the networking angle that both your speakers talked about, I I really agree with them that it really matters in terms of building those networks, particularly if you're a political candidate or a first-time entrepreneur, meeting people who are different than you, who can open up um, contacts to raising money if you're an entrepreneur or getting endorsements or meeting the right folks in politics. The two pieces of advice I got both in business school and also in politics were related to that. In business, people say it's not what you know, it's who you know. And that could be over said and, and, and all that, but I think there's a lot of truth to that. A lot of my research at Duke is on how social networks affect entrepreneurs, and I would say these platforms that match entrepreneurs with other uh, mentors and funders are great ideas because we find a huge impact of social networks on entrepreneurship. When it comes to political candidates, people say it's not – Who you know, it's who knows you. And that's the other angle I think that's really key that has been really useful for me. I've met a lot of people in Durham, whether it's uh, Mayor Bill Bell or many, many others who've helped me along the way and introduced me to folks and helped other people know me. And so I think those conversations have been uh, useful as anything I've done on the policy side, just getting to know people. So I think networks matter a lot in politics and in entrepreneurship. The startup scene in Durham is amazing. In North Carolina, there's so much potential across the state to grow businesses. We know that the majority of jobs come from new ventures, and so we ought to be doing more in North Carolina to encourage bottom-up development, people starting companies, not using big incentives to lure big companies as much as we're actually investing in the grassroots entrepreneurs. I think that's important, but entrepreneurship needs to be more diverse and inclusive. We need to get more people entrepreneurship is a team sport and we're leaving so many people off that team for really silly reasons. So one of the things I can do with state treasurer is trying to incorporate that entrepreneurial spirit across all of our communities in North Carolina. Uh, I'd love to do that. And it sounds like both your guests might be able to help me with that. Um, and I just want to thank you for having me on the show. I really, really appreciate it. This is, gr- this is really great and important stuff.
2: No problem. I'm glad that you were able to join us. And, you know, you're always welcome back anytime that you can come. And I know that you've got to bounce off and we'll continue the conversation with Leah and Kyle. But before you get off, if you could tell folks how they can reach you, how they can learn about the campaign, how they can even help with the campaign, if they're interested in volunteering or any ways that they can help in your campaign as we are nearing on the uh, election cycle. It's not that far away. It's already August. And we know that uh, November is a very important date, even on the national scene. So if you can tell folks how to reach you and if you've got any comments or thoughts about, uh, just the overall political landscape of where we are on a national scene, I'd love to hear those from you as well as you head out the door, and then I'll continue the conversation with Kyle and Leah. But definitely let let folks know how they can reach you, and if you've got any thoughts about our current political landscape, I'd love to hear those as well.
3: Oh, I love it. And, Mark, thank you for supporting me and sharing your platform with me and Kyle and Leah. I mean, it's awesome. So I really appreciate that. You can find me at com, R-O-N-N-I-E. C-H-A-T-T-E-R-J-I. One more time, dot com. You can also find us at Twitter, um, at Ronnie Chatterjee, and on Facebook and Instagram. We'd love to have your support. Email me um, through our website, and we will find a way to plug you into the campaign. It's so exciting to get emails from people all across North Carolina and across the country who want to help out. We have some of the most active volunteers of any campaign, and it's a pleasure to have them involved. Man, when it comes to thoughts on the political landscape, I think we need to do about six extra podcasts on that, but I will leave you with this. I think you've got to figure out for everyone out there who wants to be engaged, learn who your state and local candidates are. So many people who talk about being interested in politics don't know who their state and local candidates are. The second thing is, how are you going to vote? Are you going to mail in your ballot? Have you requested your absentee ballot? Make a plan to vote, because this time, more than ever, it's going to be really key to make a plan to vote. Otherwise, we're going to find it might be more difficult than it ought to be. And there's lots of folks who I think are trying to make voting easier, but we've got to all do our part as well. So that's, those are my final thoughts, and thanks again for having me on.
2: I appreciate you for being on, Ronnie, and like I said, you are always welcome to come back anytime that you can, but uh, definitely uh, know that. And, um, Cal, what are some of your thoughts about what uh, Ronnie brought up in terms of, like, the uh, nature of what's going on with the voting and the nature of absentee ballots and the mail-in vote? I know that that is an issue that we've talked about on the uh, streaming podcast, and I'd love to you to further elaborate your thoughts on that and also the importance of being an independent because you're running as an independent. You're not unlike, um, unlike what Ronnie is. Ronnie's running on the Democratic side, but you're running as an independent. So I would love to hear why you're running as an independent and also your thoughts on mail-in voting.
4: Okay. I'll start out why I'm an independent. Um, at 18 years old as a college student, um, like most African-Americans, uh, when I received my uh, registration card to register, I registered as my mother and father did. My mother and father were Democrats, and I did it blindly. Didn't know anything about politics. I knew my mother and father, my grandmother, my grandfather, all my relatives, everybody in my family, everybody on my street, all were Democrats, and that's how I voted. Um, and so I, I registered that way initially, but I was also in college as a political science student. So while a student of politics and a student of history I began to read up on the history and read about, and I realized that after Reconstruction was the period of history that was most um, fascinating to me. And it was during that period of time that the largest number of of African-American men were elected. And I I say men because during this time women were not given the right to vote, so I'm not excluding anyone. But uh, all all of the men, almost 95% of the African-American men that were elected, if not higher, were Republican. And that, you know, amazed me because I was like, wow, you know, all blacks are Democrats are supposed to be that way. But when you start looking at the Republican Party being the party of Lincoln, I begin to look at it that way. And my political strategy came to um, coming back from Dr. Carter G. Woodson in his book, The Miseducation of the Negro, said that you should never put all of your eggs in one basket. Meaning, um, you know, in the political realm, if if an individual could predict and see that of a race votes one way, and they're in one political race. But the opposing party has won multiple elections without their vote. What that means is that when another party gets in power, that they really have no obligation to do anything for you because they've been elected without your aid and help. And what happens is uh, a group of people that only vote one way are forced to have to hope and put all their prayers that, their candidate wins, or they're going to find themselves behind the eight ball. Well, just because I I, I changed my party affiliation as a Republican. However, changing my party affiliation does not mean that I bought into everything that the Republican Party spoke about, that I voted for candidates. and In fact, there were many times that I could not vote for that candidate, but at least I had the opportunity to weigh and look at both candidates. And so there were some times that I was happy with the Republican candidate, and I voted that way. There were times that I was happy with the Democratic candidate or, or maybe a candidate from another party or an, um, a third party. So as I got older, I began looking that way, and I got active in Republican Party um, politics. I was a committee chairperson, but I was always bothered with having to support, having to campaign for the party person, whoever it was. Uh, it could be a person that I looked at from a moral side, from a political side. And I said to myself, I couldn't stomach the fact of voting for this person. I just couldn't do it. But when you're a committee person, you're almost forced to say you you can't vote. You know, you can't support any other candidates publicly. You have to do this. You have to do this. And I've always been a little rebellious. And so when I've been told that I had to do something, um, my parents would probably tell you best that that was the best way to get me to do something by saying that I couldn't do it. And so the independent role really weighed better with me because it gave me the opportunity to sit in the middle and not be pressured by any party to vote for a person. And I began to close my eyes and really look at candidates for who they were versus um, just them being a Democrat or Republican. And for the last 12 or so years of my life, I've been openly that way. But, you know, before that I was, you know, a member of both parties, but I would, I guess you could say secretly or privately voted um, the other way, um, but now I have the opportunity to vote for the person I wish. And in Florida is a unique state. Florida is a democratic state in party registration by over close to 450,000 voters. So in theory, if Democrats turned out to vote more than Republicans in every election, the theory is that Democrats should win every election. Well, over the last 20 years, Democrats had had a higher turnout than Republicans in elections. However, and the 16 or the 14 states that are east of Leon County, Tallahassee, where the state capital is, those states, uh, counties, excuse me, are majority of those individuals are registered as Democrats. However, that particular portion of Florida has voted red in national and state elections for about the last 20 or 25 years. So you have a group of Democrats that are registered there as Democrats for local politics, but in statewide and national politics, they cross the party line. To vote another way, Florida's independent or in Florida, they don't call them independent. They call them NPA, no party affiliate, which is different from an actual individual um, independent. I'm an NPA. The NPAs in Florida are the third largest political um, organization after Democrat or Republican. However, in 13 of Florida's 16 counties, the NPAs are the second largest political affiliation. So you have some states that are Democrat, then NPA Republican, or Republican NPA Democrat. Five of those counties in Florida are the five largest counties in the state. If a candidate were to pull 80% of the vote in those five counties alone, it would take almost 41 other counties um, to add up to those votes and everything with the number of registration because some of the counties are so rural. And so when you think of um, swing state, Florida is really a true swing state, both Democrat-Republican, with the very possibility that an independent could win if they're given the right um, opportunity, if they network the right way, and if they're able to work the 67 counties um, properly, then Florida had that opportunity to do so. As far as appetite balance and balance, that's always been an issue. Florida has been one of the most With the exception of the last few years, liberal, because we have early voting in Florida, which is actually going on right now for the primaries. So you have 10 to 12 days that you have the opportunity to vote early. Well, they've gone through channels to try to stop that early voting because Democrats have had the history of voting more um, in those races. So there's been legislation trying to weed that back. to try to stop having it on Sunday because we have a big effort in Florida called the Souls to Polls. And so what happens is for those um, three or four Sundays that fall um, on Sundays, um, after churches, you know, the churches aren't able to dictate and say who to vote for, but what happens after services is that the churches are walking to those precincts that are close to them and getting their congregation to act turn out. so you, you're having a large turnout. And so when you have any effort to mediate that by changing those dates, by forcing you to do uh, mail-in ballots, you know, you have to be careful with that because you have to be, you know, how many people are picking those up? There's just too many hands that are changing. However, what is being told here in Florida is because of the um, pandemic that's going on is you order and you receive your mail-in ballot at home. Fill out your mail-in ballot, but on the day uh, or one of the days that can go to early voting, you physically go and turn that in as though you were turning in your ballot for your regular voting. And that way you have the safety of knowing that I know I turned my voting in versus when you mail it back, you have to kind of guess and wonder, you know, did it get there? Did it actually get voted for? But when you physically turn it in, because I think a a vast majority of people have that um, old school way of saying, I want to be able to walk into the polls. I want to be able to put my ballot in the box that it makes it feel that I voted, especially the generation after me, you know, the generation generation before me. um, They really aren't that comfortable with the mail-in because they feel – there are so many other obstacles in a way that their votes won't go there. I think we've come a long way, and voting has gotten a lot better, but I still think we have um, some adjustments we need to make to ensure that when a person goes and votes, regardless of the outcome, that you feel comfortable that your vote was counted.
2: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, Lee, I wanted to bring you back into the conversation and everything. One, I was just curious because you did say that your family moved here from uh, Bulgaria, and, of course, I know that that's a uh, – Eastern Bloc country, at least it was an Eastern Bloc country. What has been y'all's take or your family's take? of just the whole political situation and what's going on here now. Do y'all ever have that conversation? I know that you're very much concentrated on your business, but I was just curious about that because you did not mention your Bulgarian background and everything. So I was just wondering what is your take, and when you talk to your friends from around the globe, what is their take about the U.S., both in the way we're handling the pandemic and just the nature of our politics and the nature of American society? So when you talk to friends of yours that may be back home, in Bulgaria or other parts of Europe? What is their take of the American society and how we're handling things?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, Mark. Uh, So I actually moved to the United States alone. My family still lives in Bulgaria. Um, I moved there because I got a full scholarship to Brandeis University, which was – Uh, how I was able to come to the United States in the first place. I don't think that I would have been able to do that had it not been for the generosity of Brandeis. But when it comes to the uh, current situation, especially with uh, handling COVID, um, I think that uh, the United States is not the only country that's had uh, a delayed response or a response that's been less efficient. Uh, we're seeing that in other places as well. So Bulgaria, for example, was very quick to lock up. Um, it had uh, really good regulations in the beginning when they had very few cases. However, uh, then like, uh, they kept n- the number of cases low, um, and that gave people confidence to um, uh, end the lockdown and open everything up very quickly. So right now, the cases there are on the rise. And if you travel anywhere in Europe from Bulgaria, you, act, you actually need to um, quarantine for 14 days when you arrive, simply because the number of cases is going up. And we're seeing the same thing in the United Kingdom, even t- though to a lesser extent. Um, it was a country that locked up um, very late, Uh, then it kind of handled the number of cases um, uh, relatively well, like it decreased. Uh, But now that uh, things have opened, like if you look at the statistics, the number of cases um, are on the rise again. So um, I think that this is something that's very unprecedented, and everybody in the world is uh, struggling to control it to one extent or the other. Uh, even countries that did relatively well in the beginning, like Australia, are now having challenges. Now, things in the U.S. are not, um, uh, are not great, but, again, the country, it, it's a much bigger country than any of the other ones that um, I mentioned. And um, uh, when you look at the, uh, the response, um, it's not alone in how it's handling the situation.
2: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But I have heard that some of the other countries, and I'm not sure whether that's the case in Bulgaria or not, but they were actually really enforcing the mask rules. Because, like I said, I know even here in Durham, we'll see most of the people wearing masks, but there are a number of people because of either they wanted to exercise their rights or for whatever reasons they don't want to wear the mask. But I think that I know for a fact I've got a friend in Australia that they mentioned that the fine there was like a ridiculous amount that if they tried to impose that here and if they could enforce it, it might uh stop a lot of folks from not wanting to wear the um, mask and doing some of the other things that folks are suggesting. I want to say it was somewhere in the neighborhood of like $4,000 or something like that. So I don't know whether Americans would actually go for that, because we here in America are so much about our freedoms and things of that nature. But I do know that some of the other countries were having a lot of the enforcement was very much part of their resources. So I don't know, is Bulgaria doing a lot of, of enforcement in that regard?
1: So I know that masks are mandated there. Um, However, from what I hear, uh, people are actually not wearing them as much. Uh, My family said that typically when they wear them, so they only wear them inside, and uh, inside typically means grocery stores because everything else, people try to sit outside because the weather is nice. Um, But from what I hear, uh, people wear masks in a way that only covers their mouth, leaving their noses exposed. So, um, that is less than ideal, obviously, and um, I have family in the United Kingdom, um, and apparently there, until very recently, you could not, um, you could even go to the grocery store, and people would not be wearing masks. They mandated masks on July 24th, but that's only in grocery stores. Um, Places like pubs and bars uh, remain open. And um, there are some cases where even the um, waitressing staff is actually not wearing masks.
2: Wow, that's amazing that it got to there because I know even here there's been a number of cases where they've tried to restrict things. Whether it's the time that the bars close, so I think here bars and restaurants have to be closed like around 11 o'clock or so, excuse me something like that, so they have to be closed around that time. So. Definitely, it's interesting to hear that some of the European countries don't have those kind of restrictions. I'd like to hear from both of you just kind of your take on, um, because I know there have been protests here, there have been protests around the country around Black Lives Matter and things of that nature. So I'd like to hear from both of you what your take is of that movement. So I'll start with you, Kyle, your, your impression of how the Black Lives Movement Matter is going and whether you think that it's developing in the way that it should organically or not. And then I'd like to hear from Leah kind of her global perspective of how it's perceived in Bulgaria and other parts of the world. Because I've heard that there's been a lot of protests in support in other countries, but not being from those countries, I would just like to hear her take on that. But I'll start with you, Cal. Well,
4: that Black Lives Matter has a, a twofold that affect me both ways. Because one, I am an African-American male. I understand the racism that has happened um, in this country. A lot of issues come from, law enforcement, which I've also served on in that area. And so I get it twofold. Um, I've seen racism from a law enforcement point of view. I've seen some things that have happened that were um, not right. I've seen some rough arrests. I've seen some things happen. But, but I also know that every shooting and, and every time a, a person is shot, that is not always a bad situation there. And and not to say that anybody deserves anything, but there's a set of protocols that come in. And as a law enforcement officer, I think some people use the, the term I feared for my life. They use that as a defense in the place, but there are some cases where sometimes you are in a situation where you are, you know, um, your life is in danger there where deadly force is the, uh, is the only alternative choice that has to be made. In that area, and remember, it's not a Sunday morning quarterback situation. You have right at that moment to make a decision, and when you enter into a scene, you don't know what's going on when you get the call there. Sometimes, you know, and so that's just a lot of matter to go there. I believe that some of the protests, when they get to a point where they're um, looting places, when they're doing that, that has nothing to do with protest. I think those are some individuals that are looking for an opportunity to do something that they were planning to do anyway. And they're making use of that. So all the good that the individuals that are there doing the silent protest, because we have always had silent protest, we've always went against civil uh, disobedience, um, but we've done it peacefully. When that has always happened, though an arrest may be made, it forces individuals to look at the other side, like during the Civil Rights Movement, when they were peaceful in those areas. It forced other people or forced people, um, the people who weren't affected by what was happening, to view this differently, saying, wow, that's not necessary to be treated that way. But if you're out there looting, if you're robbing and you're tearing stuff up, and fire happened to come back from law enforcement, it's almost a, I can understand why that happened. So it's a very sensitive area. Um, Politically, it's very sensitive, but I sit on that area because I worked on both areas there. I've seen areas I've been in those situations before and, you know, it's not a comfortable situation to be in. However, right is right. Wrong is wrong. There have been um, friends of mine, colleagues that have done things that we've had to go to um, the courts and I've had to stand up and I've had to report what I saw simply because I know it was not going to be popular with my colleagues. But I knew for a fact that it was the wrong thing. And sometimes as a as an officer, you have to be able to tell somebody, hey, that's enough. You need to step back. You need to take a break there. When you refuse to say anything about that, you're just as guilty as watching something to go on because you have the opportunity to stop a situation before it gets out of hand. I think the group of people who are doing it starting off from, I think, as early as a Trayvon Martin and all those um, situations that happen there, the individuals, a vast majority of the individuals that are in the movement are there for the absolute right reason. Um, is it a right way or wrong way to do something? Nobody's ever going to agree completely. But when you have the opportunity to sit down with an individual and speak, not argue, not dictate to these are my demands, and if you don't listen to me, um, because both ways, both sides are going to argue back and forth. But when two opposing sides have an opportunity to sit back and say, I can see that that may be an issue, so we may need to make some adjustments there, you come to a peaceful resolution because no one is ever going to get 100% of what they want. But if you start off with a few things here, but if you are in the eyes of some breaking the law, then that's going to make it very difficult for people to sit down and negotiate or – to have sympathy for understanding and getting behind your movement because they don't understand some of the extra matters. I do believe most of the individuals that are looting and doing that are not individuals that are affiliated with the organization. However, the organization gets to bad taste for what the few bad apples are doing or those that have nothing to do with the organization and really don't really care about anything else at all. They're just coming to take advantage of a situation and manipulate it, and then they're going back. Uh, many times you'll find out those, some of those individuals are not from the area. They can come into the area there. There'll be some other conspiracies that come there. But, however, I think as a whole, um, the movement has a very good positive effect of making some change. I think that the um, some of the founders and some of the other people that I've met over the years um, that have been actively involved have really been going there. And like anything, some people are more passionate about something. So just because you yell and scream does not always mean that you're a violent person. That's just the way that you know when you're dealing with years and years and years and years. And I'm not talking about talking about 20s or 30 years. I'm talking about you know hundreds of years of ongoing. And you think things are going to get better. You think when you see certain things occur, and you continue to see things happening. Uh, many of the race riots that happened in the 70s and the 60s were not from one event happening. But there was one event that happened there that was multiplied times 100 events that had happened time before that. So that one event just caused the eruption of the volcano um, because the matter had not been dealt with. I think we are at a crossroads right now where the ears of all Americans are opening. I think we are at a crossroads now where individuals are willing to say maybe things have not been the way they were. You know, maybe I've been privileged for for so long, but maybe I need to take a look at this a little differently there, but when you're in leadership and your leadership does not have the opportunity to try to be a peaceful negotiator, uh, and that's from all levels of government, when uh, from mayor up to the highest office in the United States, you have to have an ear to be able to listen. Uh, as a party person, you can't just say, I'm only going to listen to my party. You have to have an open ear Because a good idea from the opposing side is a good idea. I don't care what side it comes from. If you have a fascinating idea for the health issue, if you have a wonderful idea to help get rid of this pandemic, if you have a wonderful idea that's going to educate the children of our country, if you have an excellent idea that's going to keep um, young men and women from being shot by police officers, I don't care if it comes from a Republican, Democrat, white, black, male, female. If the idea is good, then it's a good idea. A bad idea is a bad idea, and you should always support good ideas and bad ideas. You should um, not necessarily get behind them. And I think once we start looking at things from an idea and a person point of view versus a person or um, political party situation, I think it will begin to change our views. Um, Those that don't understand the Black Lives Matter, I think if you take the opportunity to listen and understand why this movement was established, the frustration that went through there – you may not necessarily agree with them, but you'll be able to have an understanding to say, I really didn't recognize how many people have been killed, how many situations have happened from law enforcement, how many situations have happened, and it's still happening because there's still a vast majority of people in this country that think that racism doesn't exist, and it's the imagination of, of us all. And I know um, very well, as a 50-year-old male, um, I grew up in a different time period, but I know racism is alive and racism is well and alive. And if we don't do anything about it now and start making some changes, I do believe that we're going to be headed to a more um, controversial and uh, impactive, um, uh, impact um, uh, between people that believe this thing is going
2: on and those that don't believe. Yeah, I would definitely agree with you on that and everything. Uh, Leah, I want to hear your take on just when you talk to your relatives that are in the UK and Bulgaria as to what their thoughts are on Black Lives Matter but I also want to hear you talk about entrepreneurship and the importance of entrepreneurship and also how folks can reach out to you if they've got a startup company and what you would look for in a startup company if they're interested in getting on the platform so if you could talk a little bit about that as well so I'd love to hear one your takes on the movement uh, the Black Lives Matter movement from a global perspective but I do want to come back to the conversation about entrepreneurship as well. So if you could uh, just elaborate on a little bit of those two, uh, starting with Black Lives Matter, but then looping back to the entrepreneurship and how folks can be involved and engaged in uh, your platform and in just developing entrepreneurship ideas. Because I do think entrepreneurship is a very important part of our society, and we need to find more ways to get more entrepreneurs developed.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Mark. Uh, I'm happy to answer this question, and then I'm afraid I'll have to go. Um, But in regards to Black Lives Matter, uh, I think we're finding ourselves at a very interesting point in history. Um, We haven't seen such amount of civil unrest until the uh, late 60s when the uh, civil rights movement happened and i think that such a movement is long overdue i've heard experiences of a of mine who are african-american or come from africa who have experienced racism and um, that the color of their skin impacts how people treat them um, and i think that in the end of the day that is really unjust like you People should be judged based on who they are, um, what they bring to the table, their ideas, uh, their contribution to society. Uh, the color of their skin, like we're in 2020, this is irrelevant. It doesn't matter what you look like. It matters how you contribute. And we do think that uh, entrepreneurship specifically can help alleviate that gap, Um uh, by providing role models who look different than the traditional uh, picture of success that we have in our minds. Uh, and that's why it's even more important for people from underrepresented backgrounds to be starting companies, to be solving problems that um, they see, uh, that somebody else may not see um, because they don't come from that background. And um, to that, we actually decided that we would be offering three free visibility opportunities as a platform to any founder of African descent that wants to join LSX because visibility is one of these pieces that can help uh, propel a company to faster growth and get it in front of the right people um, and uh, clo- close the gap in terms of economic opportunity and hopefully eventually uh, racism as well. Um, so in terms of the uh, startups that we typically work with, I think I mentioned earlier that they're pretty early stage. Um, but as far as the process, we are an invite-only platform, so we typically ask folks to request an invite, uh, which they can do by going on our website, which is ellisx.com, that's E-L-L-I-S-X.com, and requesting an invite. Uh, that just requires them to answer a short questionnaire about a one-minute long about their business, where they're at. And the types of companies that get in, we require that the founders would be full-time on the business, um, that they have a product in the market, and initial traction in terms of early users, and more often than not, revenue as well, because these are some markers that you've gotten somewhere on your own. People want what what you're building, and you're ready for the visibility. That will bring you growth and take your business to the next level.
2: Sounds great. And when you say um, that you have this discount for um, those from the African, uh, are we talking the entire African diaspora, so not just countries that are in the continent of Africa, but those that are like of African American or Caribbean descent, or are we specifically talking about those that are companies based in Africa?
1: Uh, So when I say um, people of African descent, that applies to African Americans, that applies to people uh, of Caribbean descent. So um, uh, anybody who uh, identifies um, as African-American, black, or uh, a person of African descent.
2: Sounds great, and I know that hopefully some of our listeners will be uh, checking into that. I know that actually um, my partner in crime, Dean, his uh, wife, and him actually have businesses that they have running of their own in addition to this platform, but they also have outside businesses as well. So if Dean is listening and hopefully his wife is also listening as well, they can uh, jump in there and uh, know that they might want to use the platform also. So, Dean, uh, pop in there and tell us if you're going to use the platform or not because I'm sure that uh, Leah would love to have you using the platform, if at all possible. So I'm hoping that you're going to be using the platform. So, uh, Dean, uh, tell us a little bit about the businesses that you've got and then let Leah know about that before she bounces off so she can figure out whether y'all fit in the platform or not because I know that you've got a number of business ventures of your own.
0: Well, I have 807 Media, which is like media production that we do – flyers, print media, things of that nature. I also a uh, distributor for streaming media centers, so you know those boxes where you can watch anything you want. all you need is an internet connection. we have those um, and then my wife has exclusive incorporated it's event planning It's beaded jewelry. She creates all these other things. I mean, she's always making something. So those are the things that, that we're doing currently. Um, and you say the platform is LSX?
1: So it's E-L-L-I-S-X.com. So L is like the person's name,
2: X, like uh, Malcolm X or any other X that we can right. think of. Dot com okay. and things of oh, that gosh. nature. So, Leah, would those kind of businesses fall within the platform of what y'all are looking for? or are y'all looking for something that's a little bit more global or international in focus? Or would like a business kind of like what um, Dean and his wife have, would they fall in the category of those kind of businesses that you would be willing to engage in and in terms of getting them out to the media as well?
1: So right now we're very much focused on high growth startups predominantly in the tech and direct-to-consumer spaces.
0: Um, okay.
1: But in the future, we plan to expand to additional verticals and help small businesses such as uh, yours, Dean, and your wife.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I cannot give you the timeline as to when exactly that will be simply because uh, I don't know yet. But I'm happy right. to be in touch. And if things change, um, I will be sure to let you know.
0: Okay.
2: That'll work. Sounds great. And I'll put uh, Dean back into the area where he's going to monitor us and all of that fun kind of stuff and everything along those lines. But before you get out and before we continue the conversation with Kyle and then we'll wrap the whole thing up within another 20 or 30 minutes, but – any words of wisdom that you would like to share. It's one of the things that I try to do on all my shows. I heard, you know, Ronnie gave his words of wisdom and everything, whether it's this platform or it's my streaming platform. I try to have folks give their words of encouragement, their words of wisdom, things that they would like to share. In your case, it might be words of wisdom that you want to give to people that are trying to start an entrepreneurship business or just people in general. So Leah, it's on you. If you would share with us some words of wisdom or things that you might like to um, part impart people with as you get ready to drop off this call and then we'll continue the conversation with Kyle and we'll see if anybody else joins in in the last 30 minutes or so. But any words of wisdom that you would like to share, Leah? And I do want to thank you for joining us here on the show. Um, I've met you through the wonders of the World Wide Web, and even though we've never physically met, uh, you call me every once in a while, I've called you a couple of times, so I definitely do consider you to be not just a business associate, but also a friend. So definitely, I just wanted to let you know that, that I do consider you to be a Brandon, glad to have you on this platform with me, but I do want you to have a chance to share your words of wisdom.
1: Thank you so much, Mark. That is very kind of you, and uh, I'm very glad that you think of me that way. It's my pleasure to be on your show uh, today, and I really enjoyed the conversation um, with uh, you and the other guests. As far as words of wisdom, I would say that – one of my personal beliefs is that people tend to focus too much on experience and too little on potential. And that is especially uh, true in a professional context when uh, there is a job opening and somebody is hiring for such an opening, there is uh, very much focus on what you have done in the past, like have you done X, Y, and Z, as opposed to what you have the potential of doing and achieving. And I think that this mindset limits a lot of people's um, desire, for not necessarily for growth, but their opportunities for growth, because maybe you didn't have the opportunities that somebody else had but most skill sets are transferable, and we will do a lot better as a society. We'll be a lot more innovative, and we will have a better chance at closing the gap associated with economic opportunities if people were willing to look beyond um, each other's resumes and into their internal drives and motivations um, and uh, uh, excuse me, uh, evaluate talent based on potential and not past accomplishments.
2: That makes a lot of sense, and that's great advice for you to give folks and things of that nature. So once again, I do want to thank you for being on the show and sharing those words of wisdom. If you want to just one more time give the uh, website, then we'll do that, and then, like I said, I'll get into the conversation with Kyle. But uh, definitely I did want to thank you for uh, providing those very powerful words of wisdom. It's actually interesting that you mentioned about potential and things of that nature because on uh, one of my other shows, Janine Dolly, who is a – HR person and very much involved with talent out of uh, New York had a very similar message about the fact that we need to actually be developing and raising this potential and not concentrating so many on the barriers that exist, whether that's around um, race, whether that's around gender, whether that's around orientation, or whether that's around religion or the various other ways that we have a tendency to divide ourselves.
1: Yeah, uh, it's very uh, encouraging to hear that other folks are thinking about the same things as well. Um, uh, so as far as contact information, uh, folks can find us at lsx.com. That's E-L-L-I-S-X.com. Or you can always email us at info at We check the email regularly, and we will always reply. Um and it was a great uh, it was really great to be on your show, Mark. I really appreciate you having me. I had a great time.
2: Glad to have you on and definitely know that you're always welcome back anytime that you feel like it. I know that I've already in conversations with a couple of uh those people that have had the businesses on your uh, platform or have businesses on your platform, and we've already had some of those that have had businesses already on the show. So definitely looking forward to continuing to find out about these innovative people that are using your platform and us having them on as guests. So definitely glad to have the founder of LSX on, or one of the founders. She's one of, I believe, it. how many founders is it all together? Is it two of y'all or three of y'all that were the founding members of the uh, platform itself?
1: There's two of us.
2: So one of the two members, and I think that I'll be getting the second member as well, because I do know that we had mentioned him coming on also. So I'm hoping that he'll join in the not-too-distant future. And there are a couple of your other business uh, owners and entrepreneurs that have expressed interest. So I'm definitely hoping that they will be joining. And like I said, I know we've already had a few on Already, So this relationship will continue, and we'll just continue letting folks know about the great work that is being done in this particular entrepreneurialship space. So I do want to thank you for uh, being on with me, and I look forward to uh, having more conversations with you in the not-too-distant future.
1: Likewise. Thank you. That-
2: Oh, uh, sorry, if I cut her off there and everything. But I did want to say bringing in uh, Cal and everything along those lines. So, Cal, you're actually running as a uh, independent and uh, toward the end we'll have uh, you and uh, Dean engage in conversation about that lovely prat that y'all belong to, since I do not belong to a prat, but we're going to keep it on the serious side right now. But why did you decide to run as a uh, independent and things of that nature? I know you shared that with me on one of our other programs, but you know, this is a different platform, so I do want folks to know why you uh, opted the independent route and why you think that that is the route to go and why you think that that might actually be the ticket or the avenue because we don't often find many independents that win state offices. So what's the mathematical numbers that are giving you hope that you'll be able to win in 2022? I do know that Jesse Ventura, I believe, won in Minnesota, and there might be some other cases that you can point to where independents have won state offices. I don't know if any have won in Florida, but I just wanted if you could explain to our listeners why you opted the independent route and why you think that the independent route is the best route to go to get you the uh, governorship that you desire. And I'd also love for you to share with our listeners that story about how you um, knew that you were going to be a governor at a very young age, because I remember that was one of the stories that you shared on our other platform about a governor that actually saw you when you were a kid, and you're definitely. Like I'm not a kid, you're not a kid anymore either. We definitely have had some experience in life, so we're no longer, we're far away from the kid years, but you did share that story, and I found it to be a very beautiful story. So if you would just share with our listeners once again your uh, reasons for running as an independent and also that story about the past governor and y'all's conversation when I think you said you were, I forgot the age, it might have been five or six, but you'll clarify. Yes, sir.
4: Well, the... the being an independent, one, I've, for many years that I've ever been a registered voter, I've never voted right down a party line. I've been both Democrat, I've been both Republican. Um, and while a Democrat, I never voted straight Democrat. As a Republican, I never voted straight Republican. Um, it doesn't mean that I voted evenly along the way, but I can't ever recall a uh, time during the whole election cycle that I only went down and said, D-D-D-D-D-R-R-R-R. So what that did in my early voting years at 18, it gave me the opportunity to, and it forced me to look at the candidate. Um, Many times uh, you'll find out when you begin to talk to a person, when you begin to ask a person questions, when you begin to look at what they've done in the past, um, you'll find out that though they may not be the party of your choice, but you may find out that this is actually the best candidate, um, um, you know, for us. But too many, too many times when a Republican candidate would come up,
3: yeah,
4: in the African-American community primarily, they were almost shunned. Um, now, there are some Republicans that I could never vote for, and I could never stand up and support. However, I never vote for a person because of their party affiliation. Um, one of the things that helped me to guide there was one of my instructors in my undergraduate years, first day of class, gave us six pictures And I can't remember the exact way they were, but just to give a short example, it was six different characters. There was um, maybe two women, one white, one black. Um, There were two men, one black, one Hispanic. And then there was maybe another um, another ethnic group, two other ethnic groups that were there. So all you saw was the picture. They were varying ages, um, but there were at least two African Americans that were there. And so the teacher said to us, okay, now vote. Of course, you know, being a political science student, your question is, okay, what's the election? What's the office? It doesn't matter. You're voting. You got three minutes to vote. Wait a minute. I don't know. Hey, five, four, it's going to be a grade in your class today. It's a quiz. So, of course, what most people do, they vote along their lines or there are other factors that come in. If you are male and there's an attractive female on the picture or a woman on the picture, you have a tendency to vote for that picture or vice versa. If there's a male that's handsome, A woman may say, oh, I like him, he's cute, Uh, however that goes back. So that's how we voted the first day. So, of course, we were confused because as political science students, we need to find out, well, I don't know what office we're voting for, and I don't know what the position is, but he was trying to prove a point. When we came back the next day, he had resumes built up, and the resumes did not have the picture. It was just a resume. So, of course, when you saw a resume that said a graduate of Howard University, your mind automatically begins to identify which one of those pictures went to Howard. When you saw a picture that said a graduate of Harvard University, your mind automatically began to dictate to you that who went to Harvard. When you hear about a person attending a college or university across seas, you automatically begin to put into various who that person was. So then you start voting differently. Now, when you compare the way the pictures and the resumes came through, it was like 70 30 meaning 70% of us got our vote wrong because it wasn't the same person we voted for the first time. Then at the end, toward toward the end of the semester, the um, professor put the resumes and the pictures together, and you saw that it was the white female that went to Howard. You found it was the African-American male that went to Harvard. And so what it showed you is when you begin to look at barriers and things that people use to dictate who you are and try to trace you down like in job applications, when you look at where a person lives, what address they came from, what neighborhood they grew up in, what city, those are barriers that normally allow a person to try to break down when they don't know enough about you. But if you just simply take the time and read about all those, you'll find yourself being in a different position and saying, the person I wanted to vote for is really not the best choice. And so with that being the case, I've always been a rebellious kid, so Voting along political parties, especially being told that I had to vote for this person, always did something to me. And so I always love the freedom of being able to vote for whoever I wanted to because that's my right. I have a right to vote for whoever I wish to. I have a right to put in a, a write-in candidate if I don't like who's there. That's my right to do. But to be told that I have to vote right down this line, and then even with that being said, it's not that you have to vote along the party lines is normally being told, this is the person within the party that you have to vote for. I've always had a real big problem with that. And so that's why I became independent. Florida is a very unique state. In the state of Florida, there are several counties. Um, like I said, there's 67 counties, but there are several counties in which constitutional officers that are county elected have been elected that are independent or NPA. And those are from the smallest counties to the largest counties. And Florida's race is really about not one whole state, but it's a person being able to run and win 67 different counties because every county in Florida has a different diversity. You have a different ethnic background. You have a different racial uh, 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 ratio of ethnic backgrounds. You have a different affiliation for party affiliation. But in every one of those counties, you have Democratic counties that vote Republican. You have counties that are 90% um, white, but you have African-Americans that have one office there. So you have so many different factors that come in that show you that if you really get to do the work and you go around to those counties, county by county, city by city, that if you do the work, that the numbers are there that are independent can win Florida. Florida right now NPAs are the third largest number, and they are the fastest growing group of people that are leaving one of the major parties or people that are registering to vote for the first time. There are another maybe 12 counties right now that are less than 200 votes away, or 200 voters away from becoming the, the second largest number. So that number is fastly approaching, I believe, with both the major parties continuing to do what they're doing now from the state and national level, that people within both parties that are not hardcore liberals or hardcore conservatives but fall in the middle of those parties Feel that you know what? If I felt the right candidate came along, I would go against them. I would go out and vote, you know, vote for them. Independents just have not had the opportunity to garner the, um, the the notoriety or the recognition. One thing that happened in this past election: I was a candidate in the 2018 race for governor. This is my um, uh, this is not the first time that I made a run um, in 2018. I was told, well, that all the independents were told that whoever received the largest number of polling and had the largest um, amount of money raised, that individual would have the opportunity to sit on the um, on the table with the Democratic or Republican nominee, because independents don't have a primary. So you know, once you qualify, you go straight to the general election, and you're sitting there waiting to see who is going to be the Democratic or Republican nominee. Well, there were two candidates who were supposed to, from the pundits that felt was going to win the Democrat and Republican um, nomination. Well, neither one of those people who were supposed to win won from either side. The person that had the highest polling in both parties and the persons who raised the most money were not the ones who raised um, who won. You had two, in a sense of Florida politics, two virtually unknown individuals to win both the party nomination, which means that the voting party in Florida was feeling something about the, you know, each party in the, uh, each person in their, um, within their particular party. So what the television station did then is notified me, because I was the person that had the highest polling and had raised the most money among the five independents, that, well, we're only going to allow the independents, um, only allow the Democrat or Republican to be part of the debate. And that was it. There was no question about it. I had put a lot of faith in having the opportunity to be on stage to be at those the two debates. And I truly felt that had I been on that debate, I can't say that I would have won the election. That's another whole story. But I do believe that had I had the opportunity to speak on those two debates, just like I'm having the opportunity to speak now, um, I had an audience of people that were able to say, wow, I think this person is worth looking into more. I think there's an option versus just the Democrat or Republican that we always have the choices and and selecting. And with the way both of those primaries went, I do believe that it would have given me a fairer chance or an independent, a fairer chance to be able to to participate and compete in the statewide election here in Florida. There are multiple statewide or countywide officers that have won state uh, countywide offices in various counties in Florida. So when you compile all those numbers together, the numbers of independents, how close we are to being um, the second largest, uh, being the second largest political party in the state of Florida. So all you need is to have, I I just call it 60-20-20 rule. If you can get 60% of the registered NPAs to vote your way, if you can get 20% of the Democrats to vote your way, if you can get 20% of the Democrats to vote your way, a person who is a um, qualified independent in Florida can win a statewide election in Florida. And being able to win a statewide election in Florida opens the door to changes in policies and national politics because you know where Florida ranks with um, electoral votes being 29. So Florida is one of the top four states in the United States as far as electoral votes. So um, if that were to happen, I think, and they can Florida a true purple state, meaning merging red and blue, Blue voters, red voters, when they come together, when you merge red and blue together, you get the color purple. And so that's what I'm looking to do in making Florida the nation's first true purple state where people come together. I'm not trying to get individuals to leave their political party, but I'm hoping that individuals will have the opportunity to open their eyes and begin to look at every candidate that comes before them. If I don't receive your vote, I would like you to say, well, you know, Kyle, I read your background. I looked at your um, website. I saw your vision for Florida. And I just don't agree with it. And this candidate is more in favor for what I believe in. That means that the voters of Florida took an active time to be educated and vote versus being told and given a compound card walking through the church or walking through the neighborhood and saying, here, vote this way. And you don't even have to take the time to read about them. This is who you need to vote for. So you have other individuals within the parties that are making a decision who they want because they've already predicted who is going to be the next state senator? Who is going to be the next member of the House of Representatives? Who is going to be the next, you know, whatever office in? And it goes with the uh, the chain of command that comes through the, um, the game playing of both parties. And I just think if we're more open to select who we wish to uh, by doing a little bit of research that we can all do ourselves, I think our election will come out um,
2: much different. Because I was thinking that oh. it seems like more and more people are actually becoming more engaged in the possibility of voting independent. I know that um, Dean is definitely uh, says uh, that he's definitely independent. I had a conversation with a cousin of mine who I made the mistake of calling her Democrat. And she's like, Oh, wait a minute, Mark, I'm actually independent. So she was saying similar to what you say that she studies the uh, candidates and uh, she may vote leaning one way, but she definitely uh, is proud to be an independent. So it seems that there are more and more of the, nation's population that is becoming independent are you seeing that in just your own research uh not just there in florida but around the nation that we are seeing more and more people that are voting independently yes
4: well voting a little more differently voting because you don't always have candidates that are running as independent so it's kind of hard to gauge if you don't have candidates that are running but the numbers and raw numbers i'm looking at is registration that you can actually see when you know that's public record you can look at every state through the uh, Secretary of State of every one of the 50 states, and you can pull up the information and it'll break it down to raw numbers, Um, number of Democrats, number of Republicans, Um, how many from 18 to 21, from 22 to 25. Um, Those numbers are broken down, and the national parties of each party knows this information. And so that's why they make a, a gainful effect to look at those independents, because even though you can't really tell who a person voted for, If there's a particular precinct, and this precinct has 80% that are independent, but that particular precinct voted one way in a political campaign, the um, political strategists know that this is a county or this is a particular precinct that has a tendency to vote this way. And so what happens is both political parties come and begin to spend money with that community. What has happened in Florida over the last several elections, is that the, the most loyal members of the Democratic Party are the African-American community. They are the most loyal, meaning that they don't ever have to worry about, um, for, for the most part, those voters going anywhere else, for the most part. In uh, this past election, 18% of African-American females voted for um, the current incumbent. However, if you have a situation where you force both political parties to come to you to say, what can I do to get you vote this election? Instead of having one party not wasting their time to come to your community or come in there because they already know, well, we know you're not going to vote for us. So it's no need in us spending any advertisement dollars in your newspapers. And so that affects businesses that are in those areas. When you have African-American newspapers, um, you have certain one party that won't spend a dime because they realize that money is basically their money wasted because – Nobody's going to vote for that particular party. Then you have the other party that says, "Well, I know you're going to vote for me, so I don't have to put as much resources into the community this go around because we already know that you're going to vote." So what both parties are doing now is they're courting the independent vote, and the independent voters are a very um, uh, uh, <clears throat> it's a soup of voters. You have male, you have female, you have gender. Uh, different genders, you have um, women, you have males, you have black, you have white, you have a big mixture of those within that independent um, voting, and so you have a good makeup of Florida primarily that I'm thinking of, you have Hispanics, you have African Americans, you have Caribbean, you have a large majority of each one of those that are tied into the independent vote, so both political parties come in and they counter and they court those, they court those votes versus the Democratic Party within the African-American community, you don't see them push the vote as much, with the exception that there's an African-American candidate running in that race. Then they'll go, they'll put the money in there because they want to see that person being elected. But you don't see them doing that, and the person that fails or is hurt by that is those communities because now you have one particular uh, party taking you for granted, And you have one that says to you, I'm able to win the election without your vote, and I've done it before, so why even waste my time to come and vote for you? But when, as an independent, you you kind of force both sides to come to you, especially when they see that you are a, what they call in the super voter campaign, where you have voted at every election, city, county, independent, uh, or primaries. When they look at those numbers and they see this person votes in every election, um, you start getting that mail there because vote Both parties are courting you because both parties want you. And I think every voter, if there's 15 candidates running for an office, 15 people should be sending you letters asking you for your vote.
2: That makes a lot of sense that you need to have that kind of uh, engagement with your community and things of that nature. we got about uh, 12 minutes to go before we get ready to wrap everything up. And, of course, in closing, I want to get your thoughts uh, like I've given the other two guests and everything. But um, would you share that story again because I love that story about um, when you were a um, – student and uh, the governor that had come and that's kind of when you had an idea that you wanted to run even as a kid so for those that are listening if you would share that story one more time I know that this is a different platform so folks may be interested in hearing that story about uh, you as a kid and how you got engaged with politics
4: uh, Eight years old I was a student in Hartsfield Elementary in Tallahassee Florida. Uh, my third grade teacher Mrs. Hager um, was, would taught us Current events, every day we had to come in with a current event. Now, you could take the risk of not doing the current event, and she didn't call your name, and you were okay. But you had to have a current event ready every morning, and she would get four or five students to stand up and read their current event, you know, who, what, when, where, why. Well, Tallahassee being the capital of Florida, I took a vested interest in civic government because I was a Boy Scout, I was a Cub Scout, so those things went there. And we took a field trip to the capital when the capital, the new Capitol building was just being built. My class was one of the first classes to have the opportunity to visit the building. Well, at eight years old, as the tour guide was taking us through the Capitol and showing us the House and the Senate and the chambers and going through the different things and how the building was built, the, the then governor of Florida, whose name was Ruben Askew, he was walking from one of the buildings and coming back to his office. And so she asked us, sarcastically, knowing that none of the kids were going to ask the question, she says. Which one of you know who that gentleman is right there? And I screamed out, Ruben ask you. And he stopped, and he came over to the group, and he said, who said that? And, of course, all my classmates pointed at me, and he came and shook my hand. He said, well, young man, there are people my age that don't know who I am. How in the world do you know who I am? I said, because you're the governor of Florida. And he said, wow. I said, because I want to be the governor of Florida. And he kind of teased and said, well, I'm glad you're not old enough to vote yet because I may be in trouble. You know, I did get that kind of question. So we talked. He took a picture with us, and then he went on about his business. About 20 years later, I was working on my master's, and I took his class at Florida Atlantic University in Boca Raton. Well, he was an instructor there teaching a class called Florida Politics and Government. I registered for his class, and I put the picture on his desk. The picture we took as a child, um, you know, as when I was eight years old, <clears throat> and he looked at the picture And he goes this is an old picture uh, My hair was all black then And now my hair is all gray And he looked around the classroom And by the middle break of that class He came and put the picture on my desk He goes Kyle is this you in this picture I was like how in the world did you get that He says, well Kyle I looked around the classroom And I saw that some of the students in this classroom Were not old enough yet They weren't even born yet They couldn't have been on that picture Because this picture was at the capitol and he was on his way out um, when he was elected. Um, he served two terms and served in the old, um, the old capital. And so he was on his last few months there before the new governor Bob Graham came in. And so he knew that was in the new capital. He said, "So I know that picture, Kyle." Secondly, I knew they had to be seventy-eight. And I looked around this room. There were some people that were old then, so I know they'd be old now. And so I did a process of elimination. He said, but I remember the conversation with a young man that said he wanted to one day be governor. And I just took my chance and I said, I think this is you. And so he was correct. Um, another maybe 12 years later or 10 years later in 1911, I mean, excuse me, 2011. I'm thinking of something else in 1911. In 2011, I filed to run for governor the first time. He was there at a breakfast and which they give a breakfast to all the former governors and bring in the, the, the newcoming governor. And I was serving as a pastor in Tallahassee at that time, so I was right there. He walked over to me, and he put his hands on my shoulder. And he says, young man, when are you going to make this? He said, governor, when are you going to make this run? He said, I'm waiting, and I'm getting to be an old man, and I want to see you up here one day before the Lord calls me home. Well, little did he know that morning I had filed to run and turned in my paperwork to run for 2014. And the first person that signed my petition to get my name on the ballot for the 2014 election um, was former Governor Ruben Askew. Uh, Unfortunately, he passed before the 2014 race was over. But one of the things he shared with me and put in my heart, he says, Kyle, you've had this in your heart for almost 30-some years now. This has been something that you've thought about since childhood. He says, I don't care what happens, he said, if you don't go through with this, if you only get three votes, you better make sure you go through because you will regret it in your older days. You'll look back over your time, you'll wonder, you know, why you didn't do it. And so with that being said, um I I was, you know, prepared to go full goal. But unfortunately in the twenty fourteen race I withdrew uh had some unfortunate family and health crises. Uh, my youngest brother, uh, baby brother Christopher was taken away in a car crash. Shortly after Christopher's death, both my mother and wife were diagnosed with cancer and while coming home from my from my mother, while she was receiving treatment to come back to Fort Lauderdale to go to treatment with my wife, my father had a stroke while I was coming home. And so, uh, those three things made it very challenging. And so I withdrew from the 2014 race, but I came back in 2018. Um, I was not successful, but out of eight candidates that started out out of 43 candidates broke down to eight at the general election, I received the fourth overall highest number of votes. But among the five independents who also ran, I received the highest number of votes by more than 10,000 votes. So what I did was the day after the election, I filed to run again, and here we are going at 2022.
2: Sounds like you've got a good uh, campaign idea and a good way of trying to win this campaign and everything. I actually just put Dean into the conversation as well because I do want to hear your parting thoughts. And then, of course, we'll tell folks who we've got for next week. But I do know that y'all share that Pratt Life. So since y'all share that Pratt Life, I was going to give you an opportunity to talk about the importance of that Pratt Life to those that are listening and who may share that with y'all the importance of the frat uh, life. Like I said, I did not opt to go that route when I went to college. went to a PWI at the Marquette, but I do have friends that followed in the different Prats and with the ladies in the sorority. So I did want to give you an opportunity to shout out Charles Pratt, and also if you wanted to talk about the importance of that to your political campaign, you can do that at this time as well.
4: I'll keep it simple. Friendship is essential to the soul. Um, purple, the old royal purple, gold, are those colors that are deep down inside my soul. Uh, I am a proud member of the Omega Psi Phi fraternity. Our fraternity has a um, has a long history of being involved in social and political affairs. Um, one mm-hmm. such person, who is one of my personal role models, was the first elected governor, African American governor in the United States, L. Douglas Wilder, who was elected. And Virginia, of all places, which was the former head of the Confederacy. And um, he was able to um, shake up the world. I remember when he ran for lieutenant governor, uh, they said to him that he'll become lieutenant governor and governor of Virginia when hell freezes over. And when he showed up to um, his inauguration, he showed up um, with an Eskimo coat. And they said, Why are you wearing that Eskimo coat? He said, I think hell freezes.
2: What a yeah. great way to uh, give folks uh, that kind of power that y'all's prat has had and everything of that nature. Dean, I know you shared that with them, so if you've got some comments to share about y'all's frat uh, life, I'll let you do that. And then, like I said, I do want to hear Cal's um, parting thoughts, just like I gave Ronnie that opportunity and Leah. So if you want to just jump in real quick with a quick comment about the frat part of life, and then, like I said, we will give Cal uh, an opportunity to give some parting words
0: of wisdom. Well, as we say, like he said, Brother Kyle said, "Friendship is essential to the soul. Communication is essential to friendship." And the the Omega Psi Phi Fraternity, Incorporated, in our opinion, is the greatest fraternity under all the heavens and earth. And there's no brotherhood. There's no brotherhood like there is in Omega.
2: Well, I'm glad to hear y'all say that. Like I said, I did not go that frat route, but I do have mad respect for those that did whether they were makers whether they belong to some of the other frats and things of that nature. And like I said, I do have friends of mine, including my mom, that did go the sorority route. She is a um, Delta, and I know a couple of other friends in the Quinzas that are AKA. So even though I did not go the sorority frat route, I do have respect for y'all that did, and I do know that it has been an important tool for many in networking. I just chose to do my networking in other ways. And as you've noticed, Dean, from all these guests I bring on, I think I've done a decent job in uh, doing. At least <laughs> the networking part of it and things of that nature. So, Cal, if yeah, you would share a little bit of uh, your late. words of wisdom that you want to share just with the general public. So any words of wisdom that you've got that you would like to share to the general public? I gave Ronnie that opportunity. I gave Leah that opportunity, so I'd like to extend that to you as well. So any words of wisdom that you want to share with folks in general?
4: My words of wisdom is that when it comes to the political election that's coming up here, um, the primaries are coming up and this 2020 election. I am one that I very rarely will outwardly speak about a candidate. Um, But I tell people that you have to turn out and vote. If you are not happy with whoever was elected, if an individual took the time and they went out and they voted, I don't have an argument with a person that may have voted for a person that I would not have voted for because I respect them for whatever reason that they actually took the time to physically vote. But if you wait till after the election and you get upset and you're angry and you spend four years being upset and mad and angry and then you even say that I might not vote again, I have absolutely nothing to say. So I have to say that regardless to how challenging the, the opposition is, regardless to how much you may not like both the candidates, you have to look at both candidates. And then make a decision to say, which one do I not like the most, and vote for the other one. Because your vote does matter. Don't get caught up in trying to think that they're doing things. Um, The reason that people spend millions of dollars to keep you from not voting is because your vote that doesn't cost a thing does matter. So you have to turn out and vote. I would much rather see a 90% turnout in a race, and I was not elected than to even say that I won, but only 22% of the voters in the state turned out to vote. Because that means over 80% of the people were not impacted and have the opportunity. When you have a larger turnout, you force other people to look at you, whether they would normally vote for you or not. If your precinct, if your neighborhood has an 80 to 90% turnout every election, I'm here to tell you that your services will be different. The people that come into your neighborhoods will be different. The law enforcement services you get in your communities will be different. But neighborhoods that have low voter turnout normally have an association of those that have um services that are not that great. And I call it the um the twelve P services that they'll have. And some of you know <laughs> about the twelve Paper. Means-
0: we don't want that, bro. <laughs> uh, I, 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 uh, uh,
2: we definitely do not want that at all and I do appreciate you for being on Cal as well as everybody else. Uh, Dean, you wanna tell folks where they can uh hear us and everything because we got all these wonderful platforms and of course you know we are lining up shows for the rest of August and the rest of the year actually and I'm still putting those together so don't have a specific guest that I can tell folks about for next week but you know by the time next week rolls around we will definitely have some folks lined up that they can hear about but in the meantime we have done these great interviews on some of our other platforms some of them that I'll be sending you Dean and I know you will post them on our next level podcast network but I know that on the 13th, you've got that interview that I did with Sandy Derney, which will discuss reparations. And speaking of folks that are running for office, also on the 13th, you've got us, uh, which is three days from now, so that'll be on Thursday, you've got Representative Zach Hawkins, who is a state representative here in North Carolina, and he talks about a lot of things around politics and social justice and things of that nature. And of course we've got uh, the a Seed show, that's already already aired, because you had that air on the 9th, but uh, we do have funk music with Zach and that'll be, I believe, the one with Alexandria. That'll be Aaron. So there's a number of shows that we have on our uh, platform that are running on a regular basis. So definitely uh, folks need to tune in and listen and hear all of this great content that we are putting on, on a regular basis and finding some great and amazing interviews. So we're adding those. As a matter of fact, I know that um, our good friend uh, Mona Shakes had Margaret show on in her uh, show, and we put that on on the 5th of this month so they can go back and listen to some past episodes as well. So they can go and definitely hear the ones when we put them on the platform but do know that they can also go back and listen to past episodes as well. So we're always trying to put together outstanding content and that's what we're going to continue to do. But uh, Dean, you want to tell folks where they can learn about what we're doing as we just kind of like uh, try to blow up the world with all kinds of great content (laughs) and great kind of information because we are definitely a global network. We have listeners from not just all over the United States, and I do mean all 50 states, but also various countries around the globe as well. So, Dean, I want to hear your party words that you always give and that little slogan that you give folks. But I do want folks to know that they can hear some amazing conversation here on a regular basis. That's what we try to create is amazing and engaging conversation. And, of course, we're always willing to hear back from you if you want to tell us about guests that you would like to have on the show or if you're just interested in even having your voice right. Raised as well because we're always open to the possibility of bringing you, our fans, on as well to be engaged in the conversation because it doesn't matter whether you're an entrepreneur, a politician, a sports figure. Or whatever, We're willing to hear from all of you, even folks that we may not agree with. Me and Dean have this running joke that if the Don wants to call in and be on the show, we will have him on the show. We may not agree with him. We might have a whole lot of hard questions that he needs to ask (laughs) that he does not want to answer, but uh, we don't mind him calling in if he's willing to take uh, the uh, heat that he might get from not just me because I think in that case, Dean might even jump in with a couple of more questions than he usually does, but if he's willing to... uh, Take the heat, the kitchen is ready for them. Ain't that right, Dean?
0: <laughs> it's very true, and um, be prepared for whatever we may ask because it's live radio, and we don't have a censor. It's Straight Talk with Dean and Mark, y'all. Monday nights on Blog Talk Radio, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Don't forget to catch the replay tomorrow and Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and Pacific Standard Time on the Skyhawk Radio Network. And if you missed those, we got replays, and we got some more replays. We got Radio Public, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Spreaker, TuneIn, Stitcher, Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, Podcast Addict, CastBox, PodFollow. Right here on Blog Talk Radio, 76 countries, all 50 states, 15 shows, and we keep moving and grooving. And like I always say, when you walk outside your front door, it's showtime and the world is your stage. Just make sure that people are not watching the rehearsal. With that being said, it's the Six Man Dean Geronimo. Have an outstanding week. And as always, we see y'all in seven days. Peace. And we'll catch y'all later. Another
2: great show. And we look forward to seeing y'all on The Rebound with more great content on next week. But like Dean said, be sure to stay engaged in this conversation and to follow the rest of our amazing shows, whether that's the WNC Original Music, She's On Call, The Mona Shake Show, Funk from the Front Seat, or a number of those other 15 shows that we have as well. As a matter of fact, I cannot forget Dean's other shows, even though he puts uh, my various shows out there, and we've mentioned a couple of them during the course of this show, but he is also part of the production team and will sometimes sit on the panel with Let's Talk About It. Uh, so we have to make sure that that also gets a shout-out as well. As a matter of fact, y'all probably got another uh, visit to you all studio coming up in the not-too-distant future, don't
0: you, Dean? So we will um try to get on the stream yard shortly. So we got we got some things in the work, man, and and you know just stay tuned. Let's talk about it as every other Thursday, and um we 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 keep going, man. We just it's all it doesn't stop. It does not stop because we want
2: to make sure that the people stay informed, and I think we're doing a great job of that. So we're just gonna keep these conversations moving right along. So want everybody to be engaged with us both here on Trade Talk with Dean and Mark and as part of our network, the Next Level Podcaster Network. So definitely on that note, we're going to bounce on out of here, and we want to wish all of y'all a very productive week ahead. We know there's hard times out there, but we also know that we as a people, and when I say we as a people, I mean us as the human people, are survivors. So we can definitely get through this, and we will find a way to get through this whether it's the pandemic, whether it's the financial woes that many of us are going through, whether it's the uh, whole controversy around divisions, and those divisions are across all kinds of boundaries, but we will find a way to get through this, and we'll come through better on the other side. At least that's the attitude that I'm having, and I think that's the attitude that Dean and many others are having as well. So on that note, I'm going to say, like Dean often tells us, it's time to bounce, and we're out of here. Thank you.